am Tim Rood, Head of Industry Relations here at Citus AMC. Welcome to the latest episode of On the Hill. My very special guest today is the Director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, better known as the FHFA, Dr. Mark Calabria. Mark, thanks so very much for joining me today. Tim, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. So Mark, as I was going through your bio, now, now stick with me a little bit here. I admit to being to drawing a parallel with the Terminator movie series. You know, the ones with, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, of course. And, uh, you know, how his Android model, the, the, I think it was the T-800, was dubbed as the perfect killing machine. So your bio is like straight out of central casting for a financial regulator. So I'm going to give some of the highlights to listeners. So most recently, Mark was the chief economist for Vice President Mike Pence covering all economic policy issues. He spent eight years with a think tank, the Cato Institute, as Director of Financial Regulation Studies. He was a senior aide on the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. He helped draft the very legislation that gave life to the agency that he now leads. He was Deputy Assistant Secretary for Regulatory Affairs at HUD. He held positions at Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies. National Association of Home Builders, National Association of Realtors, and he holds a PhD in economics from George Mason University. You know, just when you think you know a guy, you go to their Twitter page, and I felt like I met a whole other person. You know, one who loves 80s glam rock, uh, marsupials, cats, Japanese Kit Kats, which I was not familiar with, and of course, Italy. I got the Calabria reference on the Italy side. So, Mark, my question is, who is the real Mark Calabria? Where were you from? What was your childhood like? Just, you know, get to know you a little bit better. Well, thank you, Tim. And I, and I would say it's all the above. You know, I, I will note my Twitter feed is an unofficial personal feed, so we don't do policy announcements there. Uh, it really is just something to occasionally indulge in and, and more often uh, kind of hear and watch what others are doing. So, you know, who am I? Well, let's take a step back. I was born in Petersburg, Virginia, just south of Richmond. My mother's family were from Western North Carolina and my father's family were from Brooklyn, New York. We were, if you will, about six or five hours between either one. Certainly learned a lot about my father on, on what it's like to grow up in you know, a heavily Italian-American neighborhood in Brooklyn. And then obviously my mother's family of very sort of um, you know, Southern Carolina, given the very different backgrounds, my parents could have only met in something like the Navy, which is where they met. They were stationed together. Uh, to some extent, it probably still influences my perspective that both of my parents were accountants, father doing a small business accounting, mother doing accounting for, for government, you know, one with the military and later with Fairfax County. I've often joked that uh, I started out undergrad as an accounting major, but discovered I didn't have enough personality to be an accountant, so I had to switch to economics. But <laughs> at the end of the day, still having that view on numbers and an adding up you know, was a really important perspective. And of course, my, my mother has spent most of her career in government, including over 20 years in, in local government. So really early on, impressed upon me, you know, the value of public service and a commitment to seeing, you know, how you can make people's lives better. I did grow up on a farm slash ranch in Virginia for much of my childhood and very early impressed upon me that physical labor and getting up the crack of dawn was probably not what I wanted to do with my future. So greatly encouraged me to read and to study and figure a way out of that. I can empathize with a couple of those things. My mother is actually Sicilian and um, my parents owned restaurants. So I'm uh, 
very familiar with the concept of physical labor. You would take a taxi cab once you got off the bus at school and to the restaurant to do homework and then anything else they could think of to put you to work. Yeah, you know, being in that kind of family business, if you will. And, and it certainly was one of the things that encouraged me to, as a teenager to go work in restaurants because I, I was getting the unpaid farm labor was less attractive than trying to get paid restaurant work. Well, hey, man, thanks for that. So moving to the professional side, you've had, obviously, as I noted, some amazing professional roles. And frankly, you strike me as someone who's had a plan for GSE reform since he was probably in high school. I mean, you're obviously impassioned about it and know everything there is to know about it. So which experiences have most shaped your approach to regulating Fannie and Freddie? Yeah, great. That's a great question. And, and and while it may seem on paper planned, I, I can certainly assure you it was it was not that direction. You know, I think the first time I thought about GSEs, this might have been 92, 93. I was in graduate school and I wrote a paper on GSEs, really from a more of a public finance angle. I'll say as, a, as another bit of connection odd trivia. Also in that public finance class at me at that time was Mark Palin, who, of course, is the deputy chief economist, Fannie. I guess neither one of us knew that we would eventually be working on these issues for the following years. And so it really did kind of garner my interest. And it's really kind of important to emphasize, I went from undergrad into grad school, partly because I finished undergrad in that aftermath of the savings and loan crisis. And if you really think about it, that really was the first talk of jobless recoveries and you know, you had this hangover from the housing market, whether it was New England or Texas. And when I was in grad school, the conversation was about things like FIREA and Adisha and, and are we going to end bailouts? And so that was really kind of in the air. And it kind of certainly has shaped my perspective. And so when I eventually, if you ask me what are the fundamental driver's experiences on my approach to regulation, it's really that seven years I spent on the banking committee a, you know, I came to it with a sort of perspective of, well, you know, these things happen because, again, having come of age, if you will, in, this, in the savings and loan crisis, I was certainly in the view that markets go up, markets go down. Sometimes finance turns out really badly. So I think I had already come to the banking committee in that perspective, which, interestingly enough, really lined up with Senator Shelby's perspective. If, if you want to know a lot about my view, why Senator Shelby thinks the way he does is he joined the House Banking Committee as a member during the savings and loan crisis. And a lot of what he brought to his chairmanship on banking was, you know, we're not going to let something like this happen on my watch. And that's why I think he, among some others, were really ahead of the curve. I think, as you know, we started doing GSE reform in 2003 as the accounting problems that Freddie came to light. And it did take us five years to get you know, HERA done finally in 2008. A couple of the things that from that experience that I really take away is A, you have to be, you know, straightforward as a regulator. I felt like as a staffer on the banking committee during that time, you know, we got a lot of what I would call happy talk from regulators, like, you know, everything's fine, it'll all turn out okay. And obviously it did. So I've always tried to take my perspective as a regulator. I'm, I'm just going to tell you what I see. I'm not going to try to put a spin on it. I'm not going to try to, to pretty it up in a way that it's not the case. And that really has come from my experience of having been on the other side of it. I would also really add, the thing that really frustrated me as a congressional staffer is to the degree to which regulators often kind of insert their own views and try to replace those of Congress. So I recognize in the broader public debate, there's often characterized as, you know, collaborate has this agenda or that agenda. 
My only agenda is implementing the law. There are things that I like in here. There are things I don't like in here. But I think being part of the essentially deal, every, every complex piece of legislation is a deal. It is a consensus. No one person would write it the way it was written. And having been part of that, I'm very committed to, you know, whether there's stuff I like in it or stuff I don't like in it, we carry it all out. And having been there in part of the conversation about what Congress was trying to achieve really, I think, has informed my approach. So I really do see my approach as a regulator as I am carrying out the direction of Congress, the ultimate policy decisions over whether there should be a Fannie or Freddie or what they should look like. You know, those are congressional decisions. Uh, and I'm happy to offer my view on, on how you may change this or that. But on a day-to-day basis, my responsibility is to carry out the law. And I do think that differs a little bit from what you've seen in the regulatory space writ large. Often you get people who either come from the industry or outside of Washington, and, and they look at this as like, oh, I'm suddenly the CEO of the agency, if you will, and I can do what I want. And it, and it really doesn't work that way. You know, it works that you're supposed to keep a fidelity to the law. You're supposed to make sure that all of the uh, ends of the agreement are honored. And so, again, that experience on the committee, and I'll, and I'll wrap this up by saying it also gives me that experience of having been there working on mortgage finance issues before the crisis and, you know, repeatedly being told by parties that why, why, why there was nothing to see there, you know, why housing markets only go up and while prices never go down. And, you know, while we, while, and we can all remember the days when some described our mortgage system as the envy of the world. <laughs> of course, all of those things turn out not being the case. And perhaps it makes me a little more skeptical today when I hear the same sort of messages come about that there's nothing to see and nothing to worry about, or perhaps I'm just inherently a worrier. In summary, I was pretty close when I said high school. It was in grad school that you were starting to think about GSEs and potential reform. And I agree when you're talking about uh, regulators, they tend to be kind of optimistic, certainly about things like, let's just say, housing values, which are essentially ambiguous threats with no clear solution. I think policymakers are dealing with that a little bit now, which is they're going to have to find a way to maintain asset prices in general, but home prices especially, and at the same time, find a way to get an, an entry point for underserved borrowers to find their way in without getting you know, their heads taken off in the event that the housing market corrects to some degree. It's a real tension. And I think it also gets at what I call perhaps the fundamental tension, or if you will, even paradox of federal housing policy, which is we seem to have this desire to want to make housing both affordable and a good investment. And if you really dig into that and think about it, anything that's affordable, you know, anything that's a good investment is something that's going to go up in value. And obviously, if it's going up in value, it's becoming less affordable. So I do think writ large, we as a country should decide, do we want housing to be affordable or do we want it to be an asset of ever-increasing value? Because quite frankly, you can't have both, in my view. I would say we probably by default pick the good investment perspective of it. And we do forget. And again, I have a bit of a you know historical bend of let's go back and look at the data. Let's go back in the history. And I often go back to you know Bob Schiller's data and work that he's done. He puts his charts and data up on his website at Yale. You know, if you look at his data on housing prices from 1890 to 1990, you essentially had in real terms flat housing prices. And so there is a degree to which I think a lot of the housing conversation gets um, muddied by the 2000s, you know, and it used to be the case, you know, it's funny, if you talk to people, for instance, who lived in, you know, San Francisco in the 70s, they'll tell you it was an affordable place to live. I do think we have to remember that for much of American history, 
housing was affordable. I mean, we can have a separate conversation about quality of housing, which is an important component, but this really run up uh, in house prices relative to income really is a post-1990 phenomenon. Yeah, I agree. And this is a dense topic, so I, I won't carry on too much, but I thought you brought up an excellent point, which is, I think it was like 1910, you know, the average mortgage term was like 10 years. And then you get the government intervention with a thing like the FHA, and then you blow out the terms to 30 years, which achieves the enigma, if you will, that you're describing, which is how do you make housing affordable and then make it a good investment? And that's one way you do it. And I'm of the mind that it's almost inevitable that you'll see sooner or later a 40 or 50 year term mortgage. I I hope not. I think that, you know, I mean, interest rate risk is always a consideration of the long run. It it is worth keeping in mind, 1900, it wasn't unheard of to have 100 year bonds. And obviously, some countries are still looking in that regard. So part of it is that inflation risk. I also think it's worth remembering. And I think you and I are just old enough to remember our parents and all talking about like mortgage burning parties and such. (laughs) And, and, And to keep in mind, you know, previous to the 60s, the outright majority of homeowners in America own their homes free and clear. You know, and again, it's still about a third of homeowners today, so it's not zero. But you know, we, ha- you know, I would argue, and I think the data very clearly supports this: that the decades of financializing our mortgage market, and our housing system, really don't look like they've moved the needle in terms of home homeownership, but they've really moved the needle in terms of leverage. Yep. I totally agree. And I remember in the 90s and early 2000s that um, you were basically a sucker if you had home equity, right? It was a bit a cash management tool. It's dead money. But anyway, you know, I'm going to jump right to um, you know, another article I was reading recently about how you've really turned around the morale at FHFA during your tenure. In that interview, I remember you talked about companies that had gotten themselves in trouble in the past because of poor morale and ultimately when employees lack trust in their management. So two-part question. First, I'd love to hear about what you were confronting at FHFA when you first arrived there two years ago and why it was so important for you to focus on improving the culture. But secondly, you know, you've been openly critical about the corporate culture at the GSE, which begs the question, are, are you worried about what's been perceived as a decline in morale at the GSEs over the past few years? And ultimately, are you as concerned about their culture as you are, say, about the FHFAs? Maybe I'll answer some of that backwards and say, I'm even more concerned about the culture at, at the GSEs, although the culture at FHFA had to be you know, initially addressed. I mean, there's no way that we could have been successful as, as a regulator and conservator if we didn't deal with a number of uh, underlying issues. Part of it, of course, was, and you may remember, you know, it was only probably five or six years ago that people were talking about getting rid of FHA, didn't know the future of this. You, know, you had the Corker-Warner debates about what the future of the GSEs. So, you know, I came into an agency where people weren't even sure there was going to be an agency in the future. There was a degree to which I think that there was a lack of direction. You know, obviously there were management issues. And so certainly the first thing I felt that had to be done before I could get Fannie and Freddie where they needed to be, I had to get FHFA where it needed to be. Um, And we really focused on that. And we very much early on set up focus groups, town halls. We, We tried to hear from the employees. You know, we try to listen to the employees. More importantly, we tried to we tried to act on it. And, and again, I think it's natural to any organization when leadership comes in and says, "Oh, it's going to be different," that that's going to be met with some degree of skepticism, perhaps at best a trust but verify. 
Um, and so we really kind of did a lot of outreach. I mean, you know, my second day on the job, I walked the entire building. One of the things I've wanted to try to do, which of course COVID has thrown this off a little bit, was you know, sit across the table from every employee there at one point and kind of hear what they're thinking. And this does tie into to the GSEs, which I'll get to in a second, which is, you know, I've spent perhaps too much of my leisure reading time or, or even professional experience reading stories, books, reports on, on entities and organizations that have failed. And a commonality out of that to me is nine times out of 10, somebody somewhere has the right information that could have avoided the failure, but it never got to where it needed to be, you know, whether it made it to management or to decision makers. And so, you know, both FHFA and Feeney and Freddie, when I came in the door, were to agree organizations in which you kept your head down. You know, you didn't raise your hand and speak up. And obviously at the GSEs, it's a little bit of like, you know, it's, you know, why, why rock the boat? And if you're not willing to rock the boat a little bit, you're going to miss things. And you're going to miss things that potentially undermine the stability of the organization. So, and I'll take a step back and say, you know, my philosophy of leadership you know, ultimately starts with you as a leader have to have the humility and modesty to know that you're not getting the full picture, whatever the question is. And you have to seek that out the information that's there in the organization, you have to be willing to hear it. And of course, that also maintains you've got to be open to some degree of criticism. I hope that we've gotten to a point at FHFA where employees know that they can tell me what they think. They can speak up if they think we're going off. And of course, you know, being part of the history and creation of the agency, I really wanted the agency to be a success. Obviously, I put a lot of my own time. It took us five years to get HERA done. So, you know, to me, committed to the success of the agency since I was there at its birth. And I really look at my job is empowering the employees of FHFA to do their job. So how do I create the external environment with Congress, with other stakeholders, where people at FHFA can do their job and be successful at it? Also, to go back a little bit to my time on the Hill, I mean, perhaps one of the less fun things I had to do on the Hill or ended up doing was after, you know, the start of the Great Recession, you would have families that were having their house auctioned off the next day for foreclosure, calling Congress, calling the banking community, asking them to stop. And I was the one who took those calls. I also, for, for one reason or another, my name got around to the Dirksen cafeteria, which is the main cafeteria for the Senate. And food service workers would knock on my door when they wanted someone to walk them through their mortgage. And I'm certainly not pretending that I did as much work as your housing counselors and everybody else that was in the front lines. But for me, there were real people, including people that worked in the building I w- was in who had trouble with their mortgages, who were facing foreclosure. And I really bring kind of a commitment to this n- never again. You know, we can simply cannot take the gamble of finding ourselves in that situation again. So that's part of it. And, and, and that also is a bridge to kind of the culture at Fannie and Freddie and, and some of the problems I see. You know, I personally think we're moving morale in the right direction at Fannie and Freddie. I recognize there are going to be some external critics who may say otherwise, and that's fine. If you're not willing to get criticized, then you're not pushing the envelope and doing the job. But I do think both companies have, A, historically not been willing to really have the line employees kind of stick their heads up. And so how are we encouraging that dialogue? How do we create an environment where there's a respect and engagement with the regulator and conservator in a way it needs to be? And I think it's also fair to say that the companies don't have a history of, you know, essentially a culture or being regulated like other large financial institutions. And here, are, the objective of here really was to create a regulatory framework 
and engagement with the GSE. So getting Fannie and Freddie to the point where they know how to engage with a regulator in the same way that any other large financial institution is critical. But I also want to go back to those families who lost their homes, which is, I think it's fair to say that Fannie and Freddie are the single most important standard setters in the mortgage market. And this is not to take anything away from CFPB or FHFA or anybody else, but ultimately at the end of the day, Fannie and Freddie have to be the standard setters. And historically, in my view, they have not embraced that responsibility. They've embraced it as market power, but they've not embraced it. I mean, they don't really have a culture of saying no to lenders who may be engaged in a behavior that's not appropriate. So to some extent, you know, how do you create a culture of these companies where they stand up and they say, we're not going to enable bad behavior? Because again, there's always some degree of bad behavior in the mortgage market. Uh, in my view, if, if Eddie and Freddie aren't willing to, to stand up and please some of it, it's it, it only the worst bad behavior. So how do we kind of get them to embrace that responsibility to be responsible for the mortgage market? And of course, some of it should be self-interested because if the mortgage market goes sideways, you know, so will Fannie and Freddie. So to me, it's in their interest, but I think historically they've been very driven by you know market share and how do you keep business. And, and, I, and again, one of the things that shocked me when I came in was you know at least one of the companies was was compensating its executives bonuses based on market share. And you know for companies that are fundamentally in bankruptcy, which is what conservatorship is, being obsessed about market share is completely backwards. And, and again, and I do think unfortunately, I mean, you may remember Tim, you know certainly in that early conservatorship period, you know, 2010, 2011, there was humility and modesty at the companies. And I think that had gone away. And you really had a view when I came in the door of conservatorship is just something that happened to them, rather than it's the decisions of these companies that landed them in the conservatorship. And how do you get them to take ownership of their own decisions? Uh, and so there's a lot of culture change there. Both boards have set up corporate culture committees, you know, Boshiel, Barrett, Fanny. And Sarah Matthews at Freddie, the board chairs, are doing a tremendous amount of great work on the culture of the companies. And I'm, I'm very optimistic that we are turning a corner and headed in the right direction. So uh, honestly, I, you know, and let me say as a side, I think these are the best boards either one of these companies have ever had. And we're really moving things in the right direction. But at the end of the day, you can't turn a culture around in a short amount of time. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of leadership. But we're getting there. And I think ultimately these are going to be the best companies they've ever been. Yeah. Uh, some of this has to do with, of course, the, the way the companies are structured in that public-private sort of conflict. Um, so the charter issue is going to require them to lean into seller servicers since they're not going to be in the primary market themselves, which feeds into that previous obsession around market share. And you know, I was an executive there for five years in the e-business group. And um, you know, back then, it was in the early 2000s, I definitely came to describe it as a type A hunger game environment. <laughs> you had wicked smart people. Heck, the admin had an advanced degree. I mean, they were smart, wide and deep smart. And, um, you know, back then they were definitely incenting some behaviors that probably caused some bad outcomes. And you had a lot of sycophantic behavior as people were you know, kowtowing to the, the seniors up. But Anyway, I think it's I think it's markedly improved. Um, I like the direction it's going for the most part. So thank you. You're welcome. And again, I think we've always been companies that have had a lot of smart people. It's got to be what are the incentives and culture you have? You know, smarts are, are, are in and of themselves, you know, are not enough. It's obviously important, 
but you know, how do we get a company that's mission focused? And some of this is reorienting. I kind of characterize it as they're the charters as they are in law and statute. And then if you will, there's kind of a mythical charter that has, you know, evolved around these companies about views, perhaps some stakeholders and internal to the companies. And a lot of what I'm essentially trying to do. So for instance, their charters are rather clear. Their existence is to be countercyclical. The way I describe it is they're supposed to be there for the mortgage market when others cannot be. And that's a very different set of expectations than, say, a depository who, who kind of is pro-cyclical by nature. So how do you get these companies to think in a more counter-cyclical nature? You know, and again, I often think about, you know, Fannie and Freddie are essentially the nuclear reactors of the mortgage market. You know, and, and you really just cannot cut corners. I last year at some time, since we were all, you know, home as we are, rewatched the uh, HBO series Chernobyl. And it really kind of brought home to me, if you get past the British accents, that boy, if you really just have an organizational culture where nobody says something when the big light is flashing, things really go bad. And I do think that the companies need this kind of attitude that the single most important thing for them to do is to be there when others cannot be. And that implies you have to be stronger, you have to be more disciplined. You know, you can't be just like every other lemon going over a cliff. That's not how you can run your business. You're simply too important. And so I think that kind of getting people more focused on the mission, I think is important. And I think we'll get the right people there. And I think we're making that change. So again, I'm very you know optimistic about the progress we've been making and the progress we will make. And I ultimately think these will be better companies to work at. They'll be more rewarding in terms of the changes and the differences that they can make in the mortgage market. And ultimately, rather than being a source of weakness as they were in 2008, I think we could get them to the point where they can be a source of strength the next time the market turns. And perhaps this is the thing that may distinguish me from a lot of other people. I think housing markets go up and down. You know, and I don't have a crystal ball on timing. I do know that Fiend and Freddie are not ready today for a downturn. So I see my number one objective as well as the objective of the companies is how do we build a strong foundation under these companies so that they can be there for the market when it turns down next, which will inevitably happen. Walk into this, Mark. I remember in something you had you had written that if someone tells you that housing prices only go up, you should slap them. <laughs> You should you should at least be skeptical of their knowledge of the, of, of, of the marketplace. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of strong reasons for optimism. And, and I'm actually at heart an optimist, certainly about the, the long run future of our country and the housing market and other things. But, you know, there's a lot of cyclicality to this business. And I've seen very little reason to make me think that's changed. And so, you know, how are you prepared for that? And I would also say, you know, my philosophy as a regulator is to hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And so, even if your median forecast is it's not going to go down. Part of my job is I do have to think about, and I'm obligated to think about what, what's the worst 5% scenario. I mean, even if it's only 5% likely to happen, there's just too much at stake to cut corners. So how do you get back to that perspective? I mean, you go back and you look at the accounting problems of the, of the 2000s, you know, and you really ask yourself, I mean, wow, both these companies, if they had simply had better accounting and spent more on accountants and spent more on risk management, completely could have had a little bit more capital, a bit more capital, could completely have avoided the mess they found themselves in. And so, you know, how do you move away from this obsession with earnings per share or ROE and think about the long-term stability of the companies? And, 
And again, I would say, I think a lot of models are able to do that. If you know, you look at Warren Buffett and Berkshires, I mean, they don't have anywhere near the leverage that Fannie and Freddie have ever operated with. And they seem to do quite well. And they seem to step in in a market in times of stress. So I think there's a great business model to being the buyer when everybody else wants to be a seller. I think it's a profitable business model. I think it's a sustainable business model. And more importantly, it's very clear that's what they were founded to do. Yeah. So a lot to unpack on that as well. So I, I would say a couple of things. One, when, when I was there, that's when they were starting to dip their toe into the water on private label, you know, whether it be Alta or subprime stuff. And it was really mostly driven by the charter, the goals requirements that they had to be in the market every day, buying a percentage of the purchase market and goals rich buyers and things like that. So that was part of it. I would say it was, they were a, a bit of it as a, a casualty as more than causal, um, but it's a, it's a very a dense topic. And then I think to your point on the values in terms of home prices or there being a boom or bust every 15 years or so, I think everything is so darn manipulated, if not perverted, by federal government intervention and tacit embracing of you know, modern monetary theory just distorts all these things. So now the government is, there aren't the three ways out of a debt cycle, really, in terms of either growth, default, or inflation. There's only one club to reach for in the bag, and it's inflation. And they're doing everything they can to manage that and maintain some level of inflation or at least price stability. And I think that, you know, for things like the foreclosure moratorium and things like that, not ever suggesting that we should be uncharitable during a pandemic, but you're losing sight of one of the real issues, which is those market cycles, those dips create opportunities. And if there was ever a time where, you know, the country is behind creating opportunities for those underserved, boy, howdy, it's now. But I, I would very much agree. And certainly you go back to the Great Recession. I mean, and, and investors who went into the market and bought mortgages or mortgage securities in, in 2010 did quite well for themselves. And so, you know, there is a role for a countercyclical buyer. I certainly worry even post-Dodd-Frank, post-Hero, that, that much of our financial markets, particularly our mortgage market, you know, are lacking in market discipline. And, and again, part of the advantage of being there when Hero was done is one of the intents of Hero is to bring market discipline Back to the mortgage market, and I just think it's such a crucial element we forget about, which is if you're running a company where 99% of the capital structure doesn't really care what you do, then bad things are going to happen because you really have lost a tremendous source of high-powered monitoring. And you need that for a company. And again, going back to my earlier point about you know the core element of successful leadership, in my opinion, is modesty and humility, and how do you create a set of incentives and infrastructure that encourages information flow? that encourages high-powered monitoring like you would have in a market where actual credit and capital are at risk. And so I really do quite simply see everything I've tried to do in two years is implementing HERA, fulfilling the desires and expectations that Congress set out for this agency in 2008, and really trying to fulfill that. I mean, you know, members voted for this. I certainly can say I was on the floor when HERA passed. You know, members did not believe they were voting for endless bailouts of the mortgage market. That's not how these bills were sold. They were sold as we're going to bring some stability to the mortgage market. We're going to end bailouts, you know, and we're going to you know, still preserve the 30-year mortgage and everything else that's involved in that. So I really do see my job fundamentally is completing the work that Congress has tasked this agency to do. Yeah, understood. Consistent with that, you've made some great points over the past about how practically every time the government intervenes, 
it does sort of fix something that was a consequence of the last time they intervened. Kind of a hat tip to Ronald Reagan there. So the government is the problem. So how has COVID and obviously the devastating human and economic toll from the virus change your perspective on government interventions? And you know, what might the next intervention need to address? That's a great question. I would still say that we are still fundamentally dealing with a long history, you know, of one intervention, you know, after another. You could certainly argue, as I would, that the even creation of the GSEs and not just Fannie and Freddie, but the federal home loan banks, obviously Freddie was created much later. But these interventions in the 30s were in response to constraints upon banking that had a really unit banking system and a lack of geographic diversification access to capital markets. Of course, if we if we had more time, you could take it all back to structures that were set up in the Constitution. So it really is meant to offset other distortions that were put into our banking system and our financial system over time. And I think there's a real question, and that's certainly the case in the housing market, where to me, the biggest constraint or obstacle to affordable housing today are local regulations on zoning and land use. Because as I mentioned earlier, in 1970, places like San Francisco were affordable. You know, obviously there's a segment of the income distribution. If you have no income, nothing's ever affordable, but you know, middle-class families could afford homes in San Francisco in 1970. That's not the case today. And a lot of that really does, in my opinion, revolve around, you know, that land use, that zoning, you know, and, and if I am optimistic because we are seeing a national conversation and seeing a number of efforts, particularly in California, but in places like Minnesota as well and, and other places where we are rethinking the regulation of land use and housing because it actually has been an obstacle to affordability and really locked a lot of families out. And I, don't, and I think if we don't fix those problems, then, you know, almost nothing else we're going to be able to do, you know, really has an impact uh, and so certainly COVID, I mean, obviously the impact on trying to make sure we have a bridge for borrowers uh, and, you know, the, the forbearance we've had to do. I'm hopeful that we can have an exit strategy as we come out of this late summer where people are vaccinated, where we get back to normal. And I'm very proud to say that the appropriate and correct resp- assistance that we provided via Fannie and Freddie and the federal home loan banks keeping people in their homes, offering forbearance. We've not cost the taxpayer a penny. We've all done that. I know it's not always loved by all stakeholders that you know we had to charge some fees to be able to offset that. But I'm very proud of the fact we have not, we haven't asked Treasury for money. We haven't asked Congress for money. We have helped millions of people. We've quite literally, in my opinion, kept people in their homes and saved lives. And we've done it all keeping the costs within Fannie and Freddie. Uh, and not cost the taxpayer writ large. Uh, and we are doing this in a way where I'm hopeful that we don't create long-run distortions in the mortgage market. Well, I'm sure uh, I, like everybody else, hope you're right. That's for darn sure. And my fear is, you know, sort of along the lines of moral hazard or people that will strategically default um, on these things. Obviously, there's plenty of uh, need to go around. But what you learned in the last housing crisis was, People get pretty accustomed to not making their payments. And even when you show up at their door with a, a payment a plan that's substantially reduced from the original payments, it's still more than zero. And I kind of like zero. And when you have extended uh, foreclosure moratoriums or you know, states' reluctance to foreclose, it feeds into that sort of thinking. So that's it's, it's, one it's, of my it's, it's, it's a real issue. And uh, I mean, I wish others had been. Is vocal, but uh, 
you know, Tim, perhaps you noticed that, you know, this time last year in weeks after that, I, you know, I tried to be very vocal publicly saying, you know, if you can pay your mortgage, please pay it. You are pulling resources and attention away from people who can't pay their mortgage if you do. So I think there does need to be a little bit more voice in the part of policymakers of don't take assistance if you don't need it, because you're, you are fundamentally taking away from those who do. And I would say, looking at our numbers overall, I think there's been a lot less strategic behavior. Not that it wasn't feared, and I think fundamentally, a lot of it's driven by the amount of equity. So for Fiatty and Freddie, forbearance is less than 1% of them, you know, loans and forbearance had loan to values over 97. Very few of them were underwater. And so I do think that the fact that you're going to have to pay it back, and if you walk away, you're going to be forfeiting, you know, considerable amount of equity. If this had hit, struck us in an environment where house prices were down already, there was, you know, equity was down, I think we would have had a much different outcome. But of course, the cycle can and will change. So to some degree, we dodged a worse situation because of the substantial amount of equity in Fannie and Freddie borrowers. Of course, I think that's one reason why you've seen FHA not do as well, because obviously the DTIs and the LTVs and are all substantially different than they are in the GSEs. And we have spent a little bit of time in the two years I've been there, we were, we spent pretty much the entire time, you know, so we had almost, you know, not quite a year of tightening the credit box a little bit going into COVID. And one of the really big predictors that we have seen in the Fiat and Freddie book is DTI has been very large predictor of who takes up forbearance. And as you may know, in the couple of years before I came on board, there was a real explosion in high DTI lending at Fannie and Freddie. And I'm glad we started to turn that in the other direction. And I want to lastly say, quite frankly, if you look at, and I'm not going to pretend to take credit for this, but the first year I was in, which again, is basically right up to COVID, we saw the, the single largest annual increase in African-American homeownership rate in the whole time they've been keeping data and this was at a time in which we were improving underwriting standards. So I do think you can do this in a way where you're providing sustainability to families. And I think this is the big difference. 15 years ago, it was homeownership, homeownership, homeownership. And today, my hope is it's sustainable homeownership. How do we make sure that if we're going to get families in the homes, we get them so that they can stay? Because again, it's just devastating to household balance sheets. It's devastating to the neighborhoods, communities. You know, if you set people up for failure. So it's so important to make sure you do it the right way. Amen. And uh, I think with the high equity levels, the record high equity levels, you'll see hopefully in those really distressed cases, more deeds in lieu and short sales where people can have a relatively empowering exit or relocation than what we saw with, you know, 9 million foreclosures or so last time. So Mark, I could keep doing this all day, but I know I can't. So I'm going to let you jump. I can tell you this was fascinating and entertaining. And um, I look forward to catching up uh, properly next time face-to-face. Absolutely. Re- really was my pleasure. Uh, Tim, hope you are well and stay in good spirits. Thanks, man. You too. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On the Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, Visit us at CitusAMC.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.